From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And with just a few days to go until Christmas, today's show is called Tis the Season, and our gift to you are three true holiday stories from writers Kate Mayer, Lynn Edelson, and Anne Levin. The boy I lost my virginity to met the man I married one awkward Christmas Eve. My husband and I grew up in the same neighborhood. So we both knew what a house is supposed to look like during the holidays. My father hated holidays. He thought they were an invention of the greeting card industry, aided and abetted by shopping mall operators to sell people a bunch of stuff they didn't need. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Robert Moltrup discusses the kinds of things that keep writers awake at night. You hit a dry patch. At least you hope it's just a patch and not the Sahara. Like a meerkat peering up and scouting the landscape, you're in search of something to do, the next thing to write. That's all just ahead on Read 650. The Christmas and New Year's holidays are a time to break our routines, set work aside, and gather with friends and neighbors. They're a touch point that can revive old memories and present opportunities to create new ones. Holiday gatherings with family can have all the ingredients of a delicious meal. But add an uninvited or unexpected guest to the mix, and well, the recipe might also include a pinch of frustration, or embarrassment, or humiliation. A holiday platter of family drama. Writer Kate Mayer has more to say about that, and here she is, recorded on stage at the Ossie Davis Theater in New Rochelle, New York, with A Meeting of Firsts. The boy I lost my virginity to met the man I married one awkward Christmas Eve because nothing says happy holidays like a reunion of firsts in the house I grew up in with plenty of Jack Daniels laced eggnog and Karen Carpenter crooning Merry Christmas as background cheer. There was nothing cheery about it when Ralph, still handsome as ever, rounded the corner of the wood-paneled foyer and handed a Costco-sized poinsettia to my husband, Brad, with a, hey, hold this for me, will you, buddy? As he slid off his Carhartt and threw it on a chair, already overloaded with coats and cats. Ralph gave his nemesis an obligatory male head nod, not knowing who he was and not caring. He took back his hostess gift and entered the room like Santa George Clooney. He lifted my mom right off the ground with a ho, ho, ho there, beautiful, while the poinsettia whacked my poor husband in the head. (laughs) My mom was not at all surprised by this visitor of Christmas past. I was. When I first heard his voice, I got butterflies, but not the good kind, the kind when you're almost in a head-on collision. I glared at my mom, still blushing from her favorite's hug. Really, mom? I was a newlywed, and there I was with my entire family, when what could have been stood face to face with what was. My mom used her best don't-make-a-scene voice. Did I mention I saw Ralphie in town? I invited her up for a little eggnog, just for old time's sake. She fake inhaled the fragrant free flower and whispered to me, God, he's still so handsome. She sauntered into the kitchen, a table full of holiday eats. There was bottles of booze, a silver bowl of eggnog, shrimp, 
cookies and cakes, and the traditional Christmas ham. She pushed them all back and placed the poinsettia front and center, its leaves dipping into the eggnog, then crying drips of Jack Daniels onto the cheese platter. I felt its pain. Aunts and uncles and oddball cousins, friends, they all hushed at the commotion. Then they whispered, some wondering who this handsome newcomer was, others knowing full well my sexual history. (laughs) Ha, 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 Ralph, you old son of a bitch. My dad's laugh could wake the dead. A lifetime ago, his booming voice had thrown this man-boy out of our house more than once. (laughs) My dad, two fisting ham sandwiches, his big belly shaking like a bowl full of, well, you know. He swung one arm around Ralph's neck, he whipped the other around my husband's, and he pulled them both in for a dual headlock. Crumbs from his bushy Santa beard fell onto their matching receding hairlines, ham sandwiches leaking mustard under both of their chins. Look at you, he bellowed, freeing Ralph, but only slightly loosening the grip on his new son-in-law. How the hell are you? You two fellas, you got a lot in common, don't they, Kath, huh? But Ralphie, this one's got to hurt. Mouthful of ham, he said a congratulatory nod towards the son-in-law, tucked safely under his arm. I laughed a little. My husband smirked proudly from under the ham fist. Ralph laughed, but now he's a little awkward. Then the spiked eggnog kicked in, and my parents, my past, and my present all fell into a new party game. (laughs) Stories about me. (laughs) Kathy, Kate, yes, she still cursed like a mother trucker. She still collected stray animals and lonely people. She bit her nails till they bled. She was wicked and wickedly funny. When I sneezed three times, rapid fire, those darn cats, and then I rubbed my nose in these tiny little circles, my past and my present both said stop in unison. And then they proceeded to discuss my other unattractive habits. Does she still do this? What about that? Do you remember when she does this? Oh, she still does. Before I knew it, I was listening and laughing. And the two strangers became fast friends, and I recognized myself in their same but very different stories. And I realized that awkward Christmas Eve, that who I am now isn't really so different from who I was then. And for once, or actually twice in my life, I had chosen wisely, and I didn't regret a thing. Kate Mayer is a potty-mouthed, sometimes cynical storyteller, humorist, and activist, sharing life as she sees it in Newtown, Connecticut. She's a recent and reluctant inductee to AARP, the co-creator of two quasi-adults and two wannabes, and an aspiring writer with the rejections to prove it. She is sometimes funny on Instagram and Twitter as at KLMCopy. She has invisible friends on Facebook, and she writes about teenagers, midlife, social issues, feminism, and gun violence prevention. Every family has its own holiday traditions. And when it comes to holiday decorating, one family, or one woman, also has some ironclad holiday rules. Here's writer Lynn Edelson reading The Inviolable Rules of the Universe. My husband and I grew up in the same neighborhood. So we both knew what a house is supposed to look like during the holidays. Large, incandescent, rainbow-colored bulbs shining brightly for all to see. Tastefully done, of course. A simple string along the porch railing, and perhaps one underneath the gutters framing the front of the house. 
lights that greet us as we come up the walkway, reminding us that despite the gray days of late fall, Christmas is almost here. Those lights are just enough to stir my Jewish heart, but never over the top. Our two sons knew they had a full ticket to Christmas, and Santa always came to their house. They never asked, does Santa really bring presents to Jewish kids, or where's the menorah? They asked, when is Dad putting up the Christmas lights? Most people in the Northeast put their lights up right after Thanksgiving because the weather is still relatively mild. Not my husband. Today, I ask him on a sunny day with no wind. Uh, it's not cold enough, he replies. Clearly, there are rules. Any self-respecting Catholic knows you have to suffer a bit, like all those Christian martyrs. We usually bring our tree home two weeks before Christmas. The ornaments are a mix of store-bought and homemade, and we all know the history to each one of them by heart. Didn't we get this at the Times Square store when we were first living together, I asked, while holding up a small wooden blue car that resembled our 1969 VW Bug? My husband smiles and nods his head. The first Christmas we shared in our new apartment, we had nothing to hang on the skinny tree. Our budget was tight, but we splurged on two strings of small incandescent rainbow bulbs and a few wooden ornaments that we found for half price. Why does he have more ornaments with his name on them? The younger child asks. He's in his 30s. Because they love me more, the older child replies with a grin. Who, who wants to put the tinsel on, I ask, as they both reach for a handful. My husband shakes his head, knowing he'll have to redo those glimmering strands because, well, there are rules. Only one piece at a time. Don't put them on like Artie, he warns us. And we all laugh. Artie is our best friend from the old neighborhood. He takes small clumps of tinsel as he drinks his cocktail. And though he begins with single threads, by the end, he is usually in the middle of a political discussion and simply tosses the rest wherever there is a bald spot. When the tinsel is done, we usually step outside and admire the tiny farmhouse lit up inside and out with the tree in her glory framed in the window. We had a good run for years. I followed the rules, he followed the rules, until last year. Until my husband went shopping without me. <laughs> On that cold and blustery fall day, he carried new lights up the ladder and tacked them up beneath the gutters. Blue LED lights. <laughs> Elegant lights. Sophisticated lights. But not my lights. My lights were still a tasseled mess in a carton in the garage. 
Don't they look good? he asked as he climbed down the ladder. Where are the other lights? I asked. Uh, They're over there, he said, pointing at a small Douglas fir propped up outside on the porch, an afterthought draped in my large multicolored incandescent bulbs. But where are the rest, I asked. I wanted to try these this year, he said, avoiding my eyes. We both knew he had broken the covenant, and we both knew I wouldn't insist he climb back up that ladder to switch them out. But I steeled myself as he snuck a hopeful look in my direction and thought, never again. Lynn Edelson has been writing memoir for the past 10 years, and she's currently at work on a collection of short stories. She's been selected for the cast of the New York City Listen to Your Mother show. She's a frequent contributor to Read 650, and she's the mother of two grown sons. She lives in the Hudson Valley with her husband, Michael Principe, and their two dogs. In addition to traditions and rituals, holidays also create a sense of obligation or routine. Things one simply does and buys and eats or wears or says because, well, that's what we do at this time of year. But not everyone. This is writer Anne Levin on stage at the Ossie Davis Theater in New Rochelle reading Holidays Optional. My father hated holidays. He thought they were an invention of the greeting card industry aided and abetted by shopping mall operators to sell people a bunch of stuff they didn't need. If you want anything, I'll buy it for you, he'd say. But we were children, and so for at least a few years, especially in elementary school, he and my mother went along with the gift-buying program, but in a low-key kind of way. On Hanukkah, we got practical things, like socks and sweaters, and only on the first night. For show and tell day at school, when you had to bring in your fanciest Christmas present, the Gentile girls showed off things like their easy-bake ovens. I brought in my latest sweater. (laughs) After my mother died, we found letters my father wrote to her, agonizing over what to get her for her birthday. Dearest Sal, one began, I just came from Allison's. That was the name of the newsstand on Main Street. And the cards were so banal, I couldn't bear to send you one. I just want you to know, he continued, that I know you're having a birthday on the 29th. But more than that, that every day of your life is a great and important day for me. I feel tremendous gratitude for your existence and am very proud you're my wife. I really don't know what I'd do without you. I love you dearly, Len. If that sounds a little over the top, that's because my father knew that holidays, especially birthdays, meant everything to my mother. In that respect, she was like the New York City Transportation Department, which lists 34 legal and religious holidays when alternate side parking rules are suspended. she would have been all in for all of them. Luckily, both my parents were gourmets, 
So he happily went along with her inclination to throw a feast every chance she got. On the 4th of July, she hauled out her red, white, and blue tablecloths. On Hanukkah, the dreidel napkin rings. In late December, twinkling lights and pine boughs. And if the Steelers made it to the Super Bowl, then she went to the party store and bought black and gold crepe streamers. Growing up with one parent who adored holidays and another who disdained them, I had to decide for myself which, if any, rituals to follow. As a Jew, I felt no inclination to celebrate Christian holidays. As an atheist, I had no attachment to Jewish ones either. Then I married a non-believing Buddhist <laughs> who was indifferent to all three. And since we didn't have kids, we had no obligation to pass on our heritage. In other words, we were off the hook. Holidays were strictly optional. For a number of years, Stan and I exchanged token birthday presents until we reached the age when the bigger problem was how to get rid of our stuff. <laughs> that left Valentine's Day, Thanksgiving, New Year's, and our anniversary. Our anniversary was easy. Neither one of us could remember it. <laughs> We'd originally picked a date to get married that was convenient for our relatives to come to New York to witness the ceremony at City Hall. Then we took the number six train uptown and watched one of the later stages of the three-week tour to France. So we're pretty sure it's in late July. <laughs> And that's close enough for us. Both of us agreed with my dad about Valentine's Day. It's just a manufactured event designed to peddle candy, flowers, and heart-shaped tchotchkes. That's still left two biggies, Thanksgiving and New Year's. But when a secular Jew marries a secular Japanese-American, the solution's a no-brainer. We go to the one place in town that, for us, symbolizes the festive spirit of the holidays. We go to Chinatown for dim sum. Ann Levin is a writer and editor who worked for many years as a journalist, including as national news editor at the Associated Press. Before that, she was a reporter for several newspapers in Texas and California, and she continues to review books for the AP as well as for USA Today. She's at work on a memoir, two chapters of which were published in the online magazines Sensitive Skin and Southeast Review, and you can see more of Anne's work at annelevinwriter.com. If you find yourself at friends or family this holiday season, I invite you to start a new holiday tradition. It is very simple. You take the phone of one of your relatives, you ask permission first so they can punch in their own code, but then you subscribe that beloved aunt or nephew or whomever to Read 650. You just literally go into their podcast app, you follow Read 650, maybe you start playing a favorite episode. It is the gift that keeps on giving, this year and every year. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati Mayer. Our chief technology officer is Sarah Caldwell. Our announcer is Fran Tuno. And our show is produced with great help from Jim Russick. 
Coming up right after the break, it's Robert Mulford with Between the Lines. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. Okay, so I am speaking to all you writers right now. Have you ever awakened at 3 a.m. with a great idea or a satisfying solution to a writing problem you're working out? Then, maybe like me, you've rolled over and gone back to sleep, satisfied and certain that your great idea or plot device or solution would be waiting for you in the morning? You know where this is going, right? Because if you didn't reach for your notebook or your phone at 3 a.m. to jot down a note, a simple reminder, that great idea was likely gone by the time you rubbed the night's sleep from your eyes. Writer Robert Moltrup knows what I'm talking about, and he contributes today's Between the Lines segment with his essay, More to Come. You hit a dry patch. At least you hope it's just a patch and not the Sahara. Like a meerkat, peering up and scouting the landscape. You're in search of something to do, the next thing to write. This will be the one you do for yourself. So you open your file marked ideas and scan the contents. This, that, the other. Wait, what's this? Iago and Tissues. Interesting title. Click it open, page one, read, read, read. Oh, a couple of smiles. This has distinct potential. Page two, smile a little more, and eh, not bad, read, read, and then the words, more to come. Wait, stop. What? More to come? More what? And when is it coming? That draft was just getting started. Things seem to be pointing in a good direction, despite the alarming absence of Iago and even fewer tissues. Where was this going? You'll never know. Nobody will ever know, because you neglected to follow Hemingway's first law. Write at least three sentences in the next paragraph before you push away from the desk. And if you're really smart, leave yourself a note or two. It's Amelia's handkerchief we're really talking about here. Or take tissues to the next production of Othello because you invariably start to cry. You're sure... There were a lot of smart writers who made it a point to tip off their future selves about whatever it was that was going on in that furious compositional white heat, the one that the muse had carried them so far and so fast that forgetting seemed impossible. But they made notes. You're sure those writers exist, just as you're sure that that day you weren't one of them. You've forgotten. Forgotten like the midnight thoughts or the not-quite-dreams that hold the promise of solid solutions to Chapter 5. Forget to make a note in the middle of the night, and those thoughts and dreams become memory's ashes. The moral? Unlike Othello, maybe this vastly smaller tragedy has one. Be kind to the self you will be tomorrow or next week, or even next year, 
when old Iago unaccountably begins to needle your brain, that big floating soft tissue. Dear self, you can write, here's where we're going with this. Have a good time. More to come. Robert Moltrup is a fiction writer and playwright. His short fiction has been published in journals and publications including Tahoma Literary Review, Berkeley Fiction Review, Confrontation, and many others. Enchanted Lion Books published his ACLA Batchelder Award-winning translation of the critically acclaimed Danish children's book Cry Heart But Never Break. He lives and works in New York City. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show where we invite writers of all genres to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find open submission calls for upcoming shows. This has been a year unlike any other. And through the ups and downs of the pandemic, as many arts organizations have struggled or closed, you helped keep Read 650 vibrant and strong. Thanks to your generosity, we were ready in April when Carnegie Hall invited us to participate in their first ever digital festival, Voices of Hope. And you were there for us in May when we launched our weekly podcast featuring 650-word true stories and short meditations on the writing life. And you're among the first to learn this exciting news, that Read 650 is planning to resume regular live events next year, with Sunday matinees scheduled at City Winery's spectacular new Manhattan venue on Hudson River Park's Pier 57 at West 15th Street. I hope you'll help us remain a home for writers, readers, and listeners to experience the life-affirming power of storytelling, five minutes and 650 words at a time. Please consider making a year-end tax-deductible contribution today by visiting read650.org slash donate. That's read650.org slash donate. Any amount is helpful. No amount is too small. With your help, the show goes on. That's our show for today, and we thank writers Kate Mayer, Lynn Edelson, Anne Levin, and Robert Multhrop. I am thankful to you for spending some of your time listening to these stories and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. This is Read 650. I'm Ed McCann. And on behalf of our entire Read 650 team, I wish you a safe and happy new year.